guys, welcome back to the Switch Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm also Jake, and today we have a very special episode. Today we have one of the biggest people in the sports marketing world. We have Brandon Steiner. Brandon, thank you so much for joining the podcast. How's your Saturday morning going so far? It's rainy, it's cold, my shoulder's hurting, but everything else is good. You know, life's good. Nice day to just chill out, watch a couple ball games, catch up with you guys. It's a good day. Sounds great. So speaking of catching up, we're going to hop right in with what's, what, like, what, were you into sports growing up? Like, how did you eventually get into the sports world? What, were you interested in sports when you grew up? Well, I mean, of course, I was a crazy, you know, I loved playing sports, followed sports, but, you know, it really is not what led me to the sports business. I mean, you know, when I was your age and, and actually even younger for that matter, or even a little older, there wasn't a whole lot of sports business you know, that didn't exist. I mean, there were games. You watch the game once in a while. Most of the games weren't on TV. The business was really just not that big. So, yeah, I mean, I love sports. My friends, you know, we played a lot of sports. Uh, we followed sports to some degree. I was considered a sports enthusiast, but um, I never really thought when I was growing up that one day I'd be in the sport business because no one really knew what the sport business was. So growing up, did you have any favorite uh, athletes you enjoyed watching? Oh, of course. I mean, I had a lot of favorite players. And, you know, what's interesting is, like, when you're younger, you, you have your mind set on some things. But then on the other hand, I mean, a lot of the things you, you see in front of you won't exist in 10 years. I and mean, the way things are working these days, I mean, all the stuff that I saw in front of me as a kid, like 90% of it doesn't exist. Now, that's not always the case, but the way the world is changing and the way companies and business is changing, I mean, I think every five or six years, we're going to see a whole group of new companies, products, services. Back to your question, I mean, I love Clyde Frazier. I was a big number 10 guy. Uh, Walt was on the Knicks. He was the point guard. He was very cool. Got all the women dressed really cool. Um, love Roger Starback, number 12, another one of my favorites. Love Bobby Mercer, another one of my favorites. Love Bud Harrelson, number three on the Mets, a shortstop. Kind of a normal size, nice guy. Those are some of my favorites for the most part, um, you know, growing up. Earl Monroe was also one of my favorites, number 15 on the Knicks. Very similar. People don't realize how great Earl was, but because – he kind of gets overshadowed by many, many other players, but he was really one of the prolific scorers, an amazing talent. Uh, eventually got traded to Knicks and won a championship, but he was like one of those just crazy scorers that um, everybody loved, everybody kind of looked up to. But sometimes when you play in a small market most of your career, it gets kind of overshadowed back then. So – like, what was it like attending Syracuse University, which is a very prestigious university and great for sports marketing? You know, what's funny about Syracuse is that, you know, nobody in my neighborhood went to college, you know, let alone went away to college. Most stayed in Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn. And I went to an experimental high school, John Dewey High School in Coney Island. Uh, my mother sent me there so I wouldn't play sports because it was a non-competitive school. So everything was pass fail, no team sports. So... When I applied, you know, when I went home and I, my mother told me to apply to Syracuse, it was the most expensive school. And I said, Mom, I had 760 on my SATs. I, I'm never going to get in that school. And I went to a pass-fail high school, so I have no grades. And then we have no money. We're broke. And Syracuse is the most expensive school. So 
you know, what's, what's ironic about that was, and it is crazy, he said, look, you got to go up there and make a sale. I was a treasurer of my high school. And Dewey was a school that was intriguing to a lot of schools because it had never been done before, pass, fail, with all these different levels and really unusual courses. It wasn't like a typical high school. So to get to Syracuse, you know, come from where I came from was amazing. I mean, I talked to guy, I talked to the uh, admissions counselor to figure out a way to get me into the school, which was really amazing. I'm extremely grateful. So you know, I love the experience. It was the first time I had three full meals a day because you know I had the meal plan, and it was such a beautiful school. I mean, it was an upscale private school, so many new buildings, and, and it was just and being around a lot of really. Uh, functional kids too, because you know you grow up with craziness in Brooklyn, and there was a lot more functional kids. Uh, also, learning a little bit about wealth, you know, coming from uh, what I came from, most of the people that I was friends with had a lot of money, so I learned about a little bit about how one can make a lot of money. Different businesses I'd never heard of, and um, to be honest with you, Syracuse was amazing, but the academic part was a struggle. I got an accounting degree. I wasn't a great student, not because I didn't want to be, but you know, I had a little learning disability. I didn't read particularly well, certainly didn't write well. Um, and that's kind of what inspired me to write three books, frankly, the fact that I couldn't write well. And, uh, but, um, you know, I hung in and it was uh, really one of the best four years of my life. No question. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be here today without it. I, I hear a lot of kids thinking that they shouldn't go to college. And I, I do understand that. You know, the return on that investment is somewhat questionable. For me, the return was amazing. Um, if you want to invest in yourself and the growth, not only for what you can learn in a classroom, but, you know, just the just the personal growth, uh, the experience of getting out on your own without everything being on the table. And most importantly, the curiosity part, you know, trying a bunch of courses, trying a bunch of things that I probably never would have done on my own. I think that investment was well worth it. I, I do understand that that's a big price tag where a lot of young, younger people struggle whether they should go to college or not. I just think the interaction and all the things I learned in school was priceless and I never would have been able to do what I'm doing today without having those four years. So what was it like uh, working at, at Sporting Club, the New York City's first full-service sports bar, where you, what's kind of helped you get started with sports marketing, where you got to host and work with many athletes. Like, what was that like? You know, what's amazing is like, you know, I'm at the Hard Rock Cafe, and that original one, um, this is before you guys were born, but it was on 57th and 7th. And it's still, in my mind, to this day, the most successful, busiest restaurant opening and restaurant I've ever seen in my life. 200 people online. Every celebrity, rock and roll star, I met them all. And that was really my first coming out party after I had worked for Hyatt for a few years. And what was interesting is like, as much as I love that opportunity, it was a great one. And obviously you see what the Hard Rock's turned into, hotels, casinos. And this is literally the first Hard Rock that opened. And I'm sitting there going, man, I like this experience, but I got to watch the games. There's no TVs. So I figured I would take the Hard Rock experience and turn it into a sports experience, which is kind of how the idea went. And I took all the contacts and relationships that I had made at the Hard Rock and took them to this sports bar thing. And just to give you an idea, like sometimes you're going to make decisions in your life that are so difficult because nobody sees what you're seeing. and Nobody agrees with you. People are like, you're leaving the Hard Rock to go to a con. Like my mother's like, nobody's going to go to a bar and watch a game. You remember there was only two sports bars in the whole country. 
at that time in 1984. But I felt like that was an idea that I wanted to chase after. So, you know, we opened up a really, really crazy concept with a Caesars Palace scoreboard and a whole bunch of TVs. And yeah, people came. Not only did people come and watch games, but there were lines out the door at that restaurant too. And that was such an important uh, crossroads for me because that was the first time I really was able to look in the mirror and go, Brandon, you got promotional skills. Like you could market, you could advertise. Because the sporting club was all the way down to Tribeca. At that time, nobody lived in Tribeca. It was like a ghost town. It's a really desolate part of New York City. And it was really the beginning of that. And to be able to go open up a place and have lines out, out the door and everything else, like, you know something? Uh, that was a really good big wake-up call for me and really was what initiated my run with Steiner Sports and my initiated my run to, you know, open up a pretty good sports empire. So what was, like, the whole process of actually starting Steiner Sports? Well, the, 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 the uh, process was not a good one because – at the time, I had taken a little time off. I was working in a small restaurant, and I was trying to open up my own sports bar. And I remember I was just getting married at the time. My wife, a very smart lady, was helping me. We had a business plan, and we were trying to raise money. And I could only raise at the time. I needed to raise about a million three, which at that time was was a lot, a lot of money. It's, it doesn't sound like maybe a lot now, but it was a lot then. And I could not raise the damn money. So... I was really struggling and I was really frustrated. And maybe I was thinking it was, this was a sign from God. Like, I was like, you know something, maybe, maybe you had a great restaurant run. You got that out of your system. Maybe it's time to do something else. And I had a few friends, at least I thought they were my friends at the time. It said, look, you know, I think, you know, all these athletes, because all the athletes were coming to the sports bar. It was the only sports bar in New York. If you want to watch a game, you had to get it on this satellite dish. This was the only satellite dish in New York. So you're talking about divine intervention. It's crazy. So I met every general manager, president, coach, whatever. Everybody wanted to come in and watch different games. So anyway, I knew a lot of athletes. People started asking me, can you get me this athlete? Can you get me that athlete? And I went and opened up uh, 60th and Madison. I took a small little 400-square-foot office in with a bunch of other people. And I uh, started Steiner. And uh, let me tell you something. It was not easy. <laughs> I had 4000 bucks. I got, a, I, I got an Apple. Small little Apple computer was thirty two hundred. The the printer was four hundred. And I think I had like three hundred dollars for cash flow. I highly do not recommend that approach. But you know, I went after something I thought I could maybe pull off and do. And and I think it wasn't anywhere near the first few ideas I had when I started Steiner that really ended up working for me. Initially, I was just doing consulting. I was just doing marketing for restaurants and I was doing some promotions for fights. Back in the 80s, what happened is you never you didn't have cable. So if you wanted to watch a closed-circuit fight, you'd have to go to a movie theater or a sports bar. And I would go around selling the rights to those bars, be able to get the fight, you have to get a special cable box and this and that. So I did so many different things before Steiner really kicked in. I mean, it's outrageous. I mean, but that's what you have to do to survive until you figure out and until you get the right formula for your business. So what was, like, the whole experience getting to partner with the Yankees? Like, what was that like? Well, you know, the Yankees were giving me a hard time. I, what happened is in the 90s, um, I started representing a whole bunch of Yankees, and I started doing all their collectibles, starting with Jeter, Torrey, Mariano Vera, Pettit. I mean, just about all of them, to be honest with you. Not to name drop here, but I had a good amount of the team, and anybody who was anybody, they were with me. 
1998, I had 13 of the 25 starters under contract. And things were starting to get heated up. So in the early 2000s, George Steinbrenner, who I had a little relationship with, actually, I've met him a bunch of times and been up in his suite, you know, was definitely starting to put heat on me, you know, going to vendors, telling them not to sell me and start questioning what I was doing. So it kind of took me almost six months, but I, I was forced to get a meeting with Brian Cashman and Lon Trost and Randy Levine, the three guys that run the Yankees. And to be honest with you, I was just trying to get them to find out what why they were so pissed at me and why they were so on my case because I thought everything I was doing was legit. So when I went in there, um, you know, I, I, somehow the meeting went from them being in this confrontation with me to, hey, maybe we should start a business. What people don't realize is, first of all, that was an industry-leading change. To do that to do that deal changed everything. And I think when you're in a business, you decide to get involved in something. Your first intent should always be to be, do whatever it is you're doing great. And your second intent is to find the business that you got in and make it better than when you found it. And that's always been my intent with every business I get into. I want it to be better than when I found it. And I want to make sure that I'm doing the best and are the best that I could be. And hopefully it's the best in the industry. And that's what was my goal. And that's what I was kind of leaning towards. What's interesting was that the Yankee thing was not the most profitable thing for me to do. And maybe not even the smartest thing, but, but I knew it would be an industry changer. I knew it would open up the doors. I knew players would see it. Celebrities would see it. Teams would see it. And it did. It's what really dramatically changed the business because collectibles was just a little hobby. And nobody was really taking it very seriously. You know what's interesting? That took me two years to do that deal. Two years between the contracts with MLB, the PA, the players. It was so many different complex things to getting that deal done. But I knew that if I didn't do that deal, it would be very hard for me to grow my business. And sometimes you got to do something what's not necessarily best for you, but necessarily the best for the common, the common good. And I know, uh, I know it's a hard thing for you guys to probably understand, but sometimes the common good is underrated. You do things because it's best for everyone, even though it's not necessarily best for you. And if you want to be a leader, it's something that you probably want to get accustomed to. Like, I've always felt like I was a leader. I was always somebody trying to blaze a path ahead of me, ahead of everyone else. And sometimes in order to do that, there are some sacrifices. Not to be, you know, develop a Yankee Center was a sacrifice, but it was a really cool thing. And it was an amazing partnership for 15 years. But on the business end and the result end, it was a little bit of a sacrifice. So can you talk about being like the whole founder and creator of the Everything Bagel and how that whole idea came about? Well, you know, the Everything Bagel thing, which I get a lot of props for, but I mean, it's one of many things I think I've invented. But it starts when I was a kid. I, I When I was about 12, I had a paper route. And I was trying to open up all these accounts and I couldn't do it. And whoever opened up the most accounts win a box of candy bars. So I'm chasing down. You guys live in the city, I think. But, you know, all these apartment buildings, and you're knocking on doors, and nobody's getting the paper. At the time, it was eight cents to get the newspaper. So I knocked on this older woman's door, and she didn't want the paper. I thought that she was definitely going to get it. And she said, yeah, I got to tip you. I get it from the corner store. So what ended up happening eventually is I figured out I needed to have a value proposition. I need to do something more than just deliver the newspapers to get everybody to, to buy the paper from me. And value is what you can do for someone that they can't do for themselves. It's one of the most important business lessons I've probably ever learned is that 
if you really want to get a relationship going and you want to build your business, you must think about the value you can provide to someone, not all the success and the money and everything you can get. It's what you can give. So what I did is I started going around the neighborhood and I started telling people, look, I could bring you milk and bagels twice a week if you get the paper delivered in it. Everybody signed up, particularly all the older people, because this older woman, when I went back and knocked on her door, she was well in her 80s. And I said, ma'am, a person like yourself shouldn't be out when the rain, storm, snow, sleet, heat wave. If I bring you milk and bagels on a Wednesday and Sunday, would you get the paper delivered? And she said, yes. Consequently, she turned me on to an entire neighborhood. I went from that 29 dailies to over 200 newspapers a day. So I was going to the bagel store, which is right down from my house. And this is, remember, 1972. There were very few bagel stores. This was a bagel factory. They would bake all the bagels in this factory and then deliver them to all the supermarkets and groceries. And literally, it was only maybe 25 yards from my apartment where I lived over this Glock kosher butcher. So the guy says to me one day, he goes, listen, young man, would you like to wake up at four in the morning, help us bake bagels? And then you can still deliver your newspapers at 730. I said, wow, that's a great opportunity. I can make even more money and still play ball after school. But after a few months, I got really tired. I was delivering so many bagels. I was, you know, I was just falling asleep in school. So I went in to see the guy and I was going to quit. And he said, you know, the night baker, just quit. I can give you a promotion. I give you a raise. So I, when I was baking bagels at night, I was so bored because I was baking so many bagels during the morning. I started screwing around with all the seasonings. Salt, poppy, onion, garlic. And, you know, and then one night I was making all these different concoctions of a bagel and bagel twists. And I took all the seasons that had been on the bottom of the tray and just threw it on top of the bagel. That's how we got to the everything bagel. That was in 1972. And I uh, never looked back. I didn't really think it was that bigger creation until maybe only like 20, 30 years ago when it started coming up. And there have been a lot of other bagels that have been invented, you know, before I invented the everything bagel. Like, I always thought the cinnamon raisin was a really big invention. That happened like three, four years after I started baking bagels. What's interesting about that situation is that you don't really know one thing, even though it's not going to be your destiny. You don't know what's going to be your destination or your transportation. Like here I am, I'm delivering newspapers, now I'm baking bagels. You think that's not going to be my career. But meanwhile, there was a bad recession back in the 70s. And I baked bagels all the way from junior high school to high school until I went to college. I always had a job. So you don't really know how one thing's going to lead to another. And that became a really relevant thing for me because I always had to work. I worked almost full time in high school. Can you imagine, like you guys are, I think, pretty close to going to high school, if I'm not mistaken, or if you're in high school. Can you imagine working full time and going to school? That would be a lot. I mean, think about it. I was working 35 hours a week in high school and going to school on my own. No, no rides, no school buses. <laughs> yeah. So what was like? What was the whole process of selling Steiner Sports in 2000? Difficult. You know, like, you know, I built up this company. I knew it was about to take off. It was, it was doing really well already. And I knew that I was going to need... Here's the thing, you know, when you get bigger, you know, most great things that ever happen, you don't do alone. It's usually a collaboration. You need help. Something that's really hard, hard thing to understand until you need it because you always want to just get it done. You don't want to really ask for help. But I knew I was getting to the point where the company was getting really big and I needed help. So it was either going to be an investor 
a bank or maybe going to sell the company. And I decided to sell the company to a pretty big conglomerate. Uh, and, you know, listen, I was extremely poor growing up. One of my goals, which sounds crazy, was my goal was to be independently rich by the age of 30. On my 30th birthday, my brother called me up and he said, you know, I got to tell you, Brandon, you ain't rich. I was far from rich. I mean, I was just grinding away. I mean, I was like, you know something? I'm going to buy another 10 years. I'm changing my goal and I'm going to make it 40. So my goal was to be independently wealthy so I didn't have to work another day the rest of my life at 40. And uh, sure enough, I, I, I did that sale with my 40th birthday. And uh, I never had to work another day the rest of my life. Now, I didn't say I wouldn't work. I just said I didn't have to work. And uh, what I realized is that I don't think anybody grows up to try to be the best at what they do so that one day they don't have to do it. I think it's a big misconception with a lot of younger people, young professionals. They think that one day if they work hard and make a lot of money, they won't have to work. But if you really love what you're doing and you're great at what you do, you don't really want to stop doing what you're doing because you're good at it. Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback we probably know, wasn't playing every day so he could hopefully not have to play one day. Right. Michael Jordan didn't become Michael Jordan and say, man, one day maybe I don't have to play basketball, even though he had all the money in the world. And I think the goal is, is to really when you are great at something and really good at something, the doors that open up and the opportunities that arise are just incredible. And I feel bad that a lot of people walk away from that opportunity because they think that just having a lot of money is, is the win is the, is the win. Being great at something to make a difference with what you're doing in people's lives and growing all the time is what makes a difference and what makes you happy. That's a good little lesson for you guys to keep in mind. I mean, I don't know if you're catching anything I'm saying, but if you remember that, the goal of the game isn't to make as much money as you can. The goal of the game is to help as many people as you can to be great at what you're doing and keep growing at what you're doing so you can make a bigger difference. That's the name of the game. The money always will come. If you're really good at something, the money comes. It's easy. Just be good at something. That's hard. So what's this sort of been like working with so many athletes throughout the sports world and building up these relationships? It, it's been it's been different. I mean, you know, once you get through the the whole celebrity part of it, which is kind of amazing, you know, when you start hanging out, let's say, with a Derek Cheater or an Eli Manning or Muhammad Ali, I mean, it's amazing. It's epic. I'm not going to sit here. I mean, I, I, I never lose that feeling because I'm, I, for me to market these guys and for me to really see something that other people aren't seeing, I don't want to lose the fan aspect of it. So I've been with Mariano Rivera, you know, hundreds of times, and I still look at him as the greatest closer, and I still want to be a little kid about it. However, I don't want to get too caught up in that because the main thing when I'm a real collector of is the lesson. What people don't realize I'm a huge collector of what it takes to be great and be successful. So when I'm with these guys, one of the main things I always want to get from them is how the hell did they do it? And what's the special secret to their sauce that enables them to be able to play on the level they play for as long as they play and under the incredible weird situations that they play under. And I've been able to translate that and grab that and translate that into business. Because that's really what you want to do is, you want to be great. You want to be successful. You want to be the best. But that's that doesn't mean anything. The question is, how do you do it? How do you become the best? How do you get the right mindset? Why not go to somebody who's already had that mindset, who's already done it, and find out what was triggering for them? And they'll be able to steal some of those kind of feelings and ideas and be able to put that into play. And I think that's the biggest success that I've been able to 
Uh, and that's the best thing I've been able to do is, you know, meet a lot of incredible talents, enjoy it to some degree, but also steal everything I can from these guys and to figure out how the hell they got to where they are. And my suggestion to you guys, anyone listening is, if you meet anyone that's great at what they do, whether they're a lawyer, doctor, retail business, somebody who drives a bus, whatever it is, you know, when you go into all these buildings in New York City, is that one doorman that's the best doorman of all time for whatever reasons. There's something about the best. When you meet somebody that's the best, you know, don't out walk by them, you know, without stealing and finding out everything it is that they did to make them the best. So what what was the process uh, recently, more recently starting Collectible Exchange and the Steiner Agency? That's a good question. I mean, a lot of pressure on me to retire. You know, I've done a lot of great things. I've had a great, great run. You know, I'm 63. And you get a lot of pressure from the young ones. It's, you know, Brandon, you're older, retire, relax. But I really felt like as I was getting older, one of the main things you want to do as an entrepreneur is find a problem. See something that's not right, and you know you can make better. That's how my brain's always working. The what else, what's next? So I'm looking at all these people my age, besides going, wow, we're really old. I'm saying to myself, shit, what are we going to do with all this stuff that we've been collecting? I put out over 30 million autographs in the time I was at Steiner. Uh, I, I can't tell you the countless and hundreds and thousands of appearances that I've created and did. And I'm thinking, what are all these older people going to do with all the collectibles? They need a better place than just eBay to sell and buy stuff on. So I wanted to create a marketplace where people can buy and sell, but also help people evaluate, uh, authenticate, um, you know, determine what they had and what the value was, verify. So I was just kind of curious to, you know, maybe start something that's a little more modern. So I wanted to start a tech you know, I wanted to move away from the old school way. So I was ready to blow up everything I've done. And I want to do something that's like more current now, which is, you know, online, a digital company that would help people be able to buy and sell their stuff. And uh, I also wanted a way for all the athletes to be able to sell directly to the fans as well. So on Collectible Exchange, there's another part of it that says Athlete Direct. And that's where athletes can actually sell their game use stuff and autograph stuff directly to fans. I know it's like the athletes just want to have direct communication with the fans. So I thought it would be really good for the fans. I thought it would be a really good idea. Problem is, I didn't know a whole lot about tech. You know, I'm not a programmer. I'm not a big web guy. Although I did have the first website for collectibles back starting in 1999. So I'm always somebody who's not afraid to move into something I don't really know a lot about. Figuring I could figure it out and learn. I'm never afraid to learn, try new things, even if it's uncomfortable. And I hope that's a good lesson for you because you shouldn't be, you cannot have balls. That was my mother's favorite line. You got to have balls. You cannot have balls if you're going to be fearful, if you're going to be afraid to try things. Nobody ever stubbed their toe walking backwards. You got to jump into some things that feel uncomfortable. And that's the beautiful thing about being younger is that you should be curious and trying things. So to answer your question, as a 60-year-old, I've never lost my 12 11 or 12 year old in me, which is enthusiastic, trying things and being fearless. And those are ingredients, no matter what your age is, you shouldn't lose because those are the things that are going to drive you, enable you to grow and enable you to do things that are bigger and better than what you've been doing.
So can you sort of talk about how you've been creating some like the books that you've written? Well, difficultly, because, you know, as I mentioned earlier that, you know, I wasn't a particularly good writer or reader. So, uh, you know, writing three books, I just thought was kind of, I mean, I thought it was kind of, I, mean, I think some irony to it, you know, it's like, I, as as a kid, I, I was out of speech impediment, had trouble speaking. So I think the irony was, you know, I had a TV show for 14 years, had a radio show for seven years, and here's a kid who couldn't speak well. I love it. So I was like, the irony of the first book was like, you know, you can't write, you can't read, you're an idiot. You know, in my family, I was definitely the stupidest out of everyone. And, you know, you're the idiot. So I'm like, okay, watch this idiot write a book. So first it was like you know, the irony of it. And, and then, you know, I had trouble when I graduated college finding a job, even though I'd been working for quite some time, I could not get a job. And I felt like I just wasn't fully prepared uh, to go on the interviews, to go find my, get my career started. So I, my first book really is about how you start your brand in high school, the things you should be doing in college, even when you're younger. Most younger kids are thinking, oh, I'll get it. When I graduate college, I'll worry about it. You know, I'm still young. I got plenty of time. I'm like, that's bullshit. I'm like, no, 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 no. As a kid, you should have fun, be a kid. I got evicted from my childhood at an early age. But you can start building your brand when you're 12, 13 years old, which I did. So I went back and I, all the things that I did really well and smartly with a lot of my mother's help, I might add, I put in the first book. And they're all things as a high school kid, a college kid, somebody getting started can put in play. So when you want to start your career, it's not like shock radio. I mean, I was, I just couldn't believe as hard as I worked with a four-year degree in accounting and, and I still was struggling to get get going. And I just felt like there was all these little things that I had really not prepared for that I felt like I could have been more prepared for. And I thought that some of the things I had done, uh, I needed to highlight more and get, get my arms wrapped around. So that's what, that was the first book. The second book was really how 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 I built a, a business from four thousand bucks and up, and it's everything my mother taught me. Can't emphasize enough about listening to your moms. It's like, look, there's a lot of people out there that are going to give you advice, they can be your friends, but there's nobody ever ever going to be like your mom. My mom, I was a kid that listened to his mom, and the and the second book you got to have balls was a ton of stuff. My mother was a businesswoman, and she taught me and and. There's nobody's going to look out for your butt. Nobody's going to cover your butt like your mom. Nobody can look out for you. Nobody want to see you more successful than your mom. And I know it's always difficult because, you know, you get tired of your parents. You don't want to listen to them anymore because they're always kind of on your case. But there's nobody looking out for you like your mom. I mean, your dad, too, but your mom, nobody trumps. And that was the second book. The third book was about what you do after you become successful. And then you guys are a long way off from that, maybe. But the question is, let's assume you guys are good kids. You go to school, you do well, you open up some businesses, whatever you get into, you do really well. Then what are you going to do? Now you're 40 or 50 years old, you made a lot of money, then what are you going to do? And I think that was the third book is like, listen, you know, you got to prepare for what you're going to do after you hit success. And, and a, a big part of it is learning how to prepare for the inevitable, which is if you work really hard and you do good work and you're a good person, you're going to have a lot of success. And the goal is to take that success and do something with it that's extraordinary. And that's what the third book is, Living on Purpose. I don't know if that makes any sense to you guys, but because it's kind of a far-off lesson, but 
that's a book that you guys should buy for your parents because it's a great book if you're so thank you so so much brandon for hopping on our show it was a blast we hope you have a great rest of your day thank you i want to be like you guys when i grow up anyway good luck lots of success in the future and um hope you guys hope to see you guys maybe maybe i should keep an office available in my office maybe you guys maybe it's maybe it's an opportunity in sports marketing for you thank you so much Thank you.